So, Will. Yes? In this week's movie, an 81-year-old man is offered early retirement. And I just have to ask, what's your favorite movie about an old person clinging to their youth and that is just too tired of life's shit? I mean, the clinging to their youth adds an interesting dimension. Because when I think about a movie where someone is just, like, too old to be around... Honestly, I think of Marlon Brando in Superman. And really, Marlon Brando in anything post-Superman. How many things was he in post-Superman? He's still acting into the 2000s, Mark. Oh. And it's mostly him sitting, usually wearing a comfy sweater, because that is all he is willing to do. You, like, sign him up, gives you a little bit of street cred, but he will not do much. I find that very impressive, because that's honestly my ideal career. Pay me... Show up in a comfy sweater, sit in a chair, and read a couple lines? Great. Sign me up. I mean, it's not like... I mean, that's probably, like, the best time to work with Brando. Like, have you ever watched Hearts of Darkness? The documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now? No, but I have heard that he was a nightmare on set. Right, because, like, some days he would just, like, refuse to do it. He'd be like, I'm not feeling it. And he would always frame it. And, look, I believe he was thinking this way. Like, I need to be, like to become the character, and and it hasn't happened today. And, like, I believe that he sincerely felt that, but, like, this is a job, and Francis Ford Coppola is going insane in the jungles of Vietnam. Yeah, I I find method acting to just be not worth it, based off of how many good performances you get out of non-method actors who aren't giant assholes to everyone around them. That's the thing, I can't remember who said it, but some actor at some point in an interview was asked about going method and he was like you never hear stories about people who are like yeah he really got into the character so he was nice to people all the time like people just use it as an excuse to be obnoxious yeah i don't think anyone is doing it when they're trying to be a nice person like the only story that comes close to that is that i've heard daniel day lewis was pretty pleasant when he was lincoln I also don't know if she was doing a method acting but apparently mrs brady acted that way Behind the camera, too. You know, I have never seen an episode of The Brady Bunch. Me neither. How? Did you have childhoods? I didn't have cable, and we didn't watch that much TV that we did have. Okay, but it was on syndication on non-cable, just like on normal channels, like the network channels. I think both of my parents were fairly anti-Brady Bunch. Neither of them enjoyed it that much. I'm not arguing. I can't even begin to say whether or not it was in syndication on the channels that I had, because I just wasn't watching TV that much. But what about Cyber Chase? Well, Cyber Chase was on PBS Kids, which obviously I watched a ton of. Now, was Cyber Chase as good as Liberty's Kids? Obviously, no. Never. Nothing is as good as Liberty's Kids. My fourth grade teacher used to yell at me for how often I brought up Liberty's Kids. Well, yeah, that is really annoying. (laughs) I was much more of a Cartoon Network kid. And I think a lot of my humor is explained every time I go back and rewatch some of the Cartoon Network shows, such as Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack, which was honestly kind of scary to this day. I believe that the words you just said go together, but that is the first time I have heard them combined. You've never heard of the Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack? I have not, which is kind of weird because I have seen most of the animated shows of that period at friends' houses. Like, it was great having friends who loved TV because when I went over to their houses, they would be like, let's just sit in front of the TV. And I'd say, yes, please. 
I also did that with my friends who had different TV stuff. So my friend had The Simpsons on DVD, so we would watch The Simpsons, which my mom did not allow me to watch. How old were you when you were watching The Simpsons? I don't know, like 10. Oh my gosh, my mom would killed me. My mom was probably correct in not letting me watch The Simpsons. It's kind of the perfect show for a 10-year-old. <laughs> but my dad also would let me watch The Simpsons when my mom was not home. Uh, anyway, Mark, what is your favorite movie about someone who is just too old and clinging on to youth? So when I read this, of course, my first thought was the classic film Sunset Boulevard, which has a bit of overlap with this movie, honestly. Well, yes, because Clint Eastwood is 80 in both of them. <laughs> He has never not been 80, I'm imagining. The man's skin looks like it's made of Tootsie Roll wrappers. Like, not paper. It is something thinner and more crinkly. That is the most accurate description I have ever heard. But I feel that Sunset Boulevard more accurately portrays what would happen if you tried to cling to youth as hard as Clint Eastwood in in this movie, which is you commit murder. Which he literally does. Clint Eastwood is a murderer in this movie. He is a murderer. Which past. Yeah, they do not put a lot of attention onto the fact that he Clint, murders Clint someone. Reveals, Clint reveals, I choked a man to death. No one ever investigated. Boom. And everyone's like, oh, okay. And then it's never mentioned again. Okay, but he says he choked him until he passed out. It is unclear whether the man died. I think it's pretty clear that we watched this guy die. In part because of the way he then talks about, like, I kept waiting for the police to come. Like, looking for this guy's body. Well, he definitely is a man. He's a murderer. I think he committed murder. And I will say, to jump into it, that is probably the only explanation in a movie I've seen for leaving your child at boarding school that I've ever been like, yeah, you should not be taking <laughs> her on these trips. Wow. What about you? I mean, it's not as much of a depressing story is about somebody clinging to youth, but the thing that immediately pops into my mind is the Dick Van Dyke scene in Mary Poppins Returns, in which I had anxiety watching him dance on a table because I was so concerned he was going to fall over and break his entire body, which I know was shared by Emily Blunt and Lin-Manuel Miranda because they talk about it in many interviews. (laughs) I mean, I assumed once it was in the movie that it was going to be okay, but wouldn't it have been wild if it hadn't been, like, in a theatrically released Disney Christmas movie? They just hide the fact that Dick Van Dyke died during that scene until after the movie is released, and you watch it, and then it says, in memoriam, at the end of the movie during the credits. Well, it's halfway through, they do the Rogue One thing where they built the digital double of Peter Cushing, and there's just like a little skip in the video. And you never see Dick Van Dyke's feet again. (laughs) I mean, it was legitimately stressful to watch. And I would say that that is clinging to youth, because he at 96, 95 when they shot that movie, should not have been dancing like that. He just shouldn't. Well, I mean- If you can do it, go for it. Yeah, apparently he can. Because he can do it. Keeps him young. Keeps him vital. That is the tablet of Achman Ra. That's the thing that keeps Dick Van Dyke young and vital. Dancing. No, I said it. The tablet of Achman Ra. Oh, I thought you said that's his tablet of Achman Ra. No, I think Dick Van Dyke has the literal tablet of Achman Ra. 
I never really understood why that impacted the people as much. I don't know if they explained it, because it didn't seem to impact Ben Stiller. He wasn't there long enough to notice a difference. Okay. Maybe. Something in, like, the mon- the villain monologue, it's like, over time, we noticed ourselves feeling oh, more okay. vital as well. Ah, uh, that makes sense. That movie Remember, that movie sense. takes place explicitly across three days. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this movie takes place explicitly over, like, 11, so... Yeah. <laughs> All right. So should we start getting into this week's movie? Yeah, I think we probably should because we might have some trouble. I hate you. Welcome to <laughs> We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark. I'm gay. And I'm wondering if you could make a supercut of how often I say I hate you on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I would love every one of them. I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if it sometimes seems like it's the main plot and at other times kind of disappears. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, after I think a record gap of 102 episodes, we welcome back our friend Catherine Sizemore. Hey guys, missed ya. I'm pretty sure your last time on here was when we talked about The Notebook. That, oh gosh, that sounds right. So, I think one of the reasons for your gap is that we keep shitting on the movies you bring, and I feel bad, Eh. because it's gonna happen again. We invited you to The Notebook. You invited me to The Notebook. I chose this knowing you would shit on it. Okay, good. Oh, good. Oh, good. That is taking a weight off my back. I lost my expectations for you guys liking movies I chose a very long time ago, because I also recognize that I am of the exact age when most of these were made, where I was going to love them, but they really don't hold up. Okay, so tell us about the movie you've brought to us today, and tell us why it is that you love it, besides just having been like a freshman in college when it came out or whatever. Um, So this movie is Trouble with the Curve, which is a lovely movie about baseball, father-daughter relationships, and a little romance. It stars Justin Timberlake, Amy Adams, and Clint Eastwood. This movie set itself a large hurdle for me to enjoy it when they cast Justin Timberlake. (laughs) Okay, he can be great. You know, Social Network, that's a great performance as a jerk. Um, I have not seen Yogi Bear, in which he plays Boo Boo Bear. (laughs) Alongside Dan Aykroyd as Yogi. You know, but he did, like, several romantic comedies right around this time period. Yeah, this is a year after Friends with Benefits. But, you know, this movie, I grew up in a baseball family. I love baseball. I love Clint Eastwood being a grouchy old man. Well, you are in luck, because he has been playing this character for 30 years. Unforgiven, the movie about how he's too old to keep being a cowboy is 1992. Oh my god. Gran Torino, the movie about how Clint is just like an old guy sitting in a chair, he's like doing the Brando thing, is 2008. That's 13 years ago. This year, he's gonna do it again in Cry Macho. Mark, that is the real name of a movie that Clint Eastwood has directed and is starring in. Cry Macho, in which he plays a guy who is too old to perform in rodeos. Clint has been doing this character for longer than I have been alive. Nothing made me break as much as hearing his boss offer Clint Eastwood early retirement as part of the compensation for being fired. Because this man is 81. He is 
crinkled. He is withered. He looks like a stiff breeze could knock him over. And then his boss is like, oh, I know it's tough, but you could take early retirement and spend your golden years relaxing. But he's a baseball guy. Baseball guys just don't quit. I mean, baseball players do not make it to 81 on the pitch. Oh, no. Baseball players quit all the time. Baseball guys, those front office guys, they don't go anywhere. I also think it's funny that, like, this movie comes out a year after Moneyball, which is a fantastic movie, but this is, like, an anti-Moneyball movie. Like, the villain of this movie is the Billy Bean type, the guy who's like, we can use statistics to make the best baseball team. And Clint is like, no, you just gotta trust your gut, even if you can't see the game. You just gotta, you know, when when your kidney's royal, that means that that guy's a good pitcher. But that was the debate that was kind of happening in baseball, in pop culture at the time. Oh, yeah, All totally. of this stuff about how to speed up the game, how to make it more accessible to younger people, and all of this, it's still kind of happening. Oh, how to speed up the game is very much still happening. But it was that debate playing out in pop culture. But I also had the realization watching it again for this episode, yes, this is exactly the anti-Moneyball movie. I will say, though, Phil's a jerk, in this movie, in a way that... The Robert Patrick character. Yeah, in a way that Billy Bean and Jonah Hill's character in Moneyball are deaf not. To be fair, that is also the difference of being played by Robert Patrick and being played by Brad Pitt. <laughs> I did love watching Matthew Lillard in this movie just be garbage. It was fun. And I was like, I just, I kind of thought this movie was Moneyball in my memory, And so I was excited because I'd heard good things about Moneyball, and then it wasn't. (laughs) And I got confused. Moneyball rules. It's an Aaron Sorkin screenplay about an underdog baseball team. What more could you want? This movie, on the other hand, starts with a horse running in the dark, and then Clint Eastwood struggling to pee. Okay. First of all, what you need to know is that that horse killed his wife. It took out a knife and stabbed his wife repeatedly, which is a thing I wrote in my notes trying to figure out what the horse was there. Okay, but the horse comes back. Yeah, the horse comes back when we learned that Clint murdered someone. So the horse isn't a murderer, it's Clint. (laughs) The horse represents Clint murdering someone for molesting his daughter. And that's what the movie's symbolism of the beginning is. Yeah. And it's also like the horse is getting away, like his daughter got away. The thing about this movie is it has no subtlety. Oh, absolutely (laughs) not. Every time it's like approaching, making a point... It then says, oh, you see it? You see that thing coming? Coming at you like a horse running at you? Let's talk about it now. I was texting Rachel throughout this whole movie because we were watching it at about the same time and I didn't want to talk to Will. Yeah, Mark was like 10 minutes ahead of us. And I texted her that this movie makes both at the same time the most obvious choice and somehow the least understandable one. You're talking about the one where Clint talks to his penis and that's the first dialogue of the movie. Yes. And also when the skinny dipping happens and it was so so uncomfortable, I was just in my head, I was thinking, this is obviously going to happen. It has to happen, but it also shouldn't and makes no sense for why it is happening. This movie is an extraordinary testament to the skill of Amy Adams as an actor because the screenplay is pretty bad. Like the dialogue is very clunky, but... Amy Adams, by far, out of everyone in this cast, is the one who is most able to make it sound natural coming out of her mouth. Oh, 100%. I mean, the skinny dipping scene, my first reaction is you don't get into a body of water that you don't know what is in it. Right. I am just, in general, very wary of bodies of water because I don't like being in an environment 
where I cannot breathe and my potential enemy can. That's also why I avoid vacuums. But especially at night in like a strange lake, no thank you. I mean, I had the like thought process. I guess North Carolina, Asheville, it's you don't really have gators, but you do have poisonous water snakes. And yeah, I don't know. I just maybe being raised around water, you just are wary of bodies of water you are not sure are actually swimming holes and you should not go in them. It did have a dock. I kind of assumed it was a swimming hole. It That's was fair. the town's yeah. swimming hole because it was developed enough to have a simple wood dock. So it wasn't that that bothered me. It was also just the whole thing around it and most of the movie itself. The Timberlake character really feels like an afterthought in this movie. And the movie is primarily about the relationship between Amy Adams and Clint Eastwood. The problem is every once in a while it wants us to be really invested in the Adams-Timberlake relationship. But he disappears for long stretches of the movie. And sometimes like he comes back like... After he and Amy Adams have their first, like, cute date night, the next day at the game, he shows up and Amy Adams is, like, not talking to him. And it's not really clear why. So it's just hard to get invested in the relationship because he's not really in the movie. And also, it's not always clear, like, what's going on with it. This movie would be very improved without the Justin Timberlake character. Or with more of it. There's the wrong amount. There's the wrong... I don't think the movie needs to be longer. It's not even that long, but I think it would be better to be trimmed than padded. And I didn't feel like she needed a partner because it was about her reconnecting with her dad. And I think one thing that movies think has to happen, even in parent-child relationships, is the child or the parent has to also fall in love. But I don't need that in a movie like this. Okay, but you could... uh, I agree with you because I also think you could argue that the real love story of this movie is their love with baseball, like their love of baseball and Amy Adams falling back in love with baseball. I think would maybe be the better, for lack of a better word, romance, but love story of this movie. But the problem is that like Justin Timberlake doesn't represent baseball. Right. Like if it were a player, that would make more sense. No, I'm saying he literally doesn't exist. And the romance of this movie really is just, or the love story of the movie is just, her falling back in love with baseball. I agree with you. He probably shouldn't exist in this film. I think more could even have been done with her ex, where instead of finding a new person, it's easier to justify having an ex that she's distant with at the beginning, but then she reconnects with her dad at baseball and herself, and she learns to love again and has a happier relationship with the character introduced at the beginning. Because you don't need to grow to like the character, honestly, because he's a nothing burger. But it shows her development as a person. So we're talking a lot about the screenplay of this movie, and I think we should explore that a little bit more. The movie is credited to Randy Brown, and this is the first screenplay credited to him. I keep saying credited. We're going to get into that. Uh, First screenplay credited to him that was produced. Since then, he wrote Miracles from Heaven, that Christian movie. And he wrote that upcoming Sterling K. Brown movie about a a janitor who starts coaching a middle school basketball team. I really don't know why, but when you said Randy, for some reason, I jumped to Randy Jackson. I wish. Extremely confused. Not enough uses of the word dog in this movie to be a Randy Jackson. But the thing about this movie is that it was the subject of a like pretty massive plagiarism lawsuit. So a producer named Ryan Brooks, he sued Warner Brothers, alleging that Trouble with the Curve is substantially similar to a screenplay 
he and his writing partner wrote called Omaha about an aging college baseball coach. Omaha is where the College World Series is played. So this guy, Ryan Brooks, he said that he and his writing partner split up and his writing partner took the Omaha script and camouflaged it by making it about the pros scouting high schoolers instead of about a college coach. And then his writing partner found this like putz, Randy Brown, who had like two credits on like TV or something, and then file it with the WGA that way to try to get rid of the connection. And like part of the conspiracy was like, how does Randy Brown have such a good agent? He has like no credits. The lawsuit itself is kind of amazing to read because it is full of grandiose writing about how like it is important to stand up against the gatekeepers who control all the money and all the power in Hollywood and stuff like that. It also accused Randy Brown, the screenwriter, of being obviously rehearsed in interviews. It was like, anybody who listens to his answers about how he came up with the story, they don't make any sense. This guy's clearly making it up. He didn't write nothing. This movie doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's the thing. I'm like, you're writing over this, this movie that is pretty boring and also was a flop? Anyway, Warner Brothers claimed that the screenplay had been originally written in 1998, but Ryan Brooks said, no, it wasn't. For starters, the screenplay you brought out has a reference to wireless laptops. And number two, it wasn't registered with the WGA at the time, which is what people do. Fine. He also claimed that the forensic evidence that they found of it existing on floppy disks had been faked. He's like alleging this ever-expanded conspiracy. In 2014, a federal judge threw the case out. It said that Brooks dramatically overstated the similarities between Omaha and Trouble with the Curve, and that even if they had been as similar as Brooks claimed, those similarities boiled down to father-daughter baseball movie. Which is correct. It is absolutely a father-daughter baseball movie. Yeah, that's true. But as the federal judge said, that is not a copyrightable idea. Well, as a Warner Brothers movie, though, we all know who actually wrote this, and it is what actually makes sense. It is Algie Rhythm. Right. Did you notice LeBron in the stands at one point? He got Seinfeld visioned into it. I genuinely was watching this without realizing it was a Warner Brothers movie and thought to myself, I bet Algie Rhythm wrote this. Well, you didn't figure it out because Randy Brown made the bold creative choice to not mention every five minutes that it was made by Warner Brothers, which is a real deviation from the kind of pattern we see in movies like Space Jam and New Legacy. I hate that movie. Yeah, no, it's no good. It's, no one should watch it. Speaking of first times, this is not just the first time for our screenwriter. It's also the directorial debut of Robert Lawrence, who's primarily a producer and assistant director who had been working with Clint Eastwood since the early 2000s. Basically every movie he did from Bloodwork and then even past this to American Sniper. This is so far one of Lawrence's only two movies. He directed this in 2012, and then in January 2021, he released The Marksman, which is a January Liam Neeson action movie. Which I follow the box office and I've never heard of. I mean, there wasn't much box office in January 2021. No, but I was still watching for releases, and it's a movie I've never heard of. I feel like I heard about it. Isn't it one where he kind of adopts a Mexican boy or something? Who can tell? They all kind of run together in my head. I haven't seen one since Taken. I heard some of them are good. I heard some of them are bad. Unless the name is very specific, like The Commuter, they don't really stick in my head. Remember The Commuter? I mean, it exists. Couldn't tell you about it. I think he takes a train at some point, and probably frequently. Like I said... Trouble with the Curve was a flop. It opened on September 21st, 2012, 
in third place with $12 million. It went on to gross just $35 million at the domestic box office, which is not great because it cost $60 million to make. I mean, they had to get into Turner. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think that's what made this movie cost too much money. This feels like a movie where they paid everyone's quote. Oh, no, it's it's 100% quote. I don't see $60 million on this screen. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they spent a lot of time in one bar in small town North Carolina that can't have been that expensive to make. Yeah, Catherine, I think you're right. Like, they paid some chunk of change to shoot at Turner Field in Atlanta. But, yeah, I think this is just cast cost. Like, they they put a bunch of stars in it. This is Clint's first time acting in a movie he didn't direct since, like, 1993. Wow. So, I'm sure that cost some amount of money. Uh, technically, it's 1995. In 1995, he had a cameo in Casper, but his last real performance in a movie he didn't direct was in The Line of Fire in 93. Actually, interesting note about that. He became available to be in this because, as you may know, he was the one who was originally developing the Star is Born remake and was going to star Beyonce, but she got pregnant, so the movie got put in turnaround, and Clint's like, guess I'll have some trouble with the curve. So, where was Amy Adams in her career at this point i can't remember where she was in 2012 i mean she is already getting the like when is amy adams gonna get an oscar narrative she's nominated early of course for junebug there was a real campaign for her for enchanted this is the same year as the master which is another oscar nomination for hers that she doesn't win but yeah i mean it at this point she is basically the amy adams we know which is you know one of the best what's she got to do to win an oscar not this movie (laughs) what is wild to me is she has a pretty poor rendition of You Are My Sunshine that she sings. <laughs> yeah, but she ain't the of. only one. Um, oh, no. Nobody can sing in this movie. It's weird that the movie commits so hard. It's another example of the movie having no subtlety. Like Clint Eastwood gravelly speaking the lines of You Are My Sunshine in their entirety at his wife's grave. <laughs> it was so long. <laughs> I know. You can fade out in the next scene. We'll understand what's happening. But my first thought when she started singing was, this is post-Enchanted. We know she can actually sing. And this year, we're going to find out if she can still sing. Ayo. What movie is she singing in? She's in Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, God, I forgot. I forget everything about that movie every time. I burst out laughing every time I see that trailer in theaters, and... I feel a little bit bad because there are other people in the theater with me. But on the other hand, they should not have cast Ben Platt as a high schooler because he and I are the same age and I've been teaching for the better part of a decade. Well, and they're and they're in the middle of filming the Enchanted sequel. So Oh, that's true. I, lots of Amy Adams singing coming soon. And one of the many people, I think, who thought Dear Evan Hansen was about a gay kid that broke his arm. <laughs> this was not a thing I was aware of. Like... I have not seen it, but I I knew what it was about. And the day the Dear Evan Hansen trailer came out and like gay Twitter was very confused. I did think that was pretty funny. I mean, I think all of the Evan Hansens on Broadway have been gay and are either dating or married to each other at this point. There are multiple Evan Hansens that are in relationships. Yeah, they're very cute. Not all of them are dating or dating each other, but you are correct. It there should are be in the contracts. They should be required to. Multiple Evan Hansons that are iterations of Evan Hansen who are together. Yeah, I was a little disappointed when I saw it, and I was just like, when is he going to come out? Jesus Christ. And then he never does. <laughs>
No, he's just trying to flirt with Caitlin Deaver. Yeah, I didn't really process how creepy the whole plot was till after I watched the musical and sat with it. And I was like, wow, this is not very good. He is a creep and a liar. But he's a depressed creep and liar. Yeah, if he just came out, maybe he'd feel better. <laughs> I almost feel like we should just like put Dear Evan Hansen on the schedule and do it when it comes out. Like, It's not going to be a Best Picture nominee. We don't have to save it. We probably should. We haven't dove into the well of toxic relationships in a little while, such yeah. as Twilight. When oh, are we going to do I've the next watching, Twilight movie? I've been watching through them this summer with Catherine. We're watching Eclipse right after we record this episode. Ugh, ugh. Yeah, have fun with that. I will be at a drag brunch, apparently. I'm now invited to do things again and having to readjust to that reality. This is a real blow for you. Not watching Eclipse? No, being invited to things. Oh, I know. It's just a change. I mentioned that we're going to be able to do Dear Evan Hansen because I am confident it will not be a Best Picture nominee. I mean, look, maybe I'll be wrong and Universal will be happy, but I'm, I'm rolling the dice on that one. Um, Look, nothing about trouble with the curve is oscar bait it's released too early to be a serious contender you know early september and also the movie is just a little too light to feel like it's gunning for that it does feel like awards bait to me though but for awards that don't get awards bait this feels like a movie trying to earn an aarp movies for grown-ups award (laughs) like i was watching this and obviously i know every nominee and winner of the aarp movies for grown-ups awards but they all run together in my head so i don't have them all instantly and at some point in it, I was just like, this feels like someone said, oh, there's an award for best intergenerational story. We should go for that. But Will, the movie was written before the AARP movie for Grown Up started because it was written in 1996. Uh, yes, but it came out in 2012. And actually, when I checked, this movie was nominated for the AARP movies for Grown Ups Award for best intergenerational story. I mean, that can't be the most competitive category. Yeah. The other nominees that year were Moonrise Kingdom, Parental Guidance, and Sean Baker's Starlet. And the winner, unsurprisingly for that year, was Silver Linings Playbook. What's intergenerational about Moonrise Kingdom? Besides the kids have parents. That might be it. (laughs) Children have parents in that movie. Yeah, it feels like they were really uh, stretching for one there. All right. So, Will, do you have more AARP movies for grown-ups fun facts, or can we start getting into the romance? No, that's the only nomination it got, which is, like, kind of embarrassing, honestly. Like, this feels like a movie that that should be doing better in there, but it's not a very good movie. When are they going to just introduce a category that's best old actor and cut it off at 80? Like, as the youngest? Yeah. I mean, I got very annoyed when I was putting together all those AARP Wikipedia pages because I discovered that their rule of you must be 50 to be nominated, does not apply in all categories. Most particularly, best grown-up love story, where, like, you got people getting nominated in their 30s. Army Hammer got nominated for J. Edgar when he's, like, 25. Okay, that's the youngest one you've told me about. That's offensive. Right, and at least in that one, like, there's a lot of old-age makeup work in that. But there are movies where it's just straight-up two 30-year-olds playing against each other. And I'm like, that that's not AARP. There's no integrity to this. I yell about this more in an upcoming episode. <laughs> Oh, is that a later episode that we discuss this? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So now that Will has gotten that off his chest, every week we break the romantic plotline of a movie down into five points. Catherine, as our guest, will you take us to point one? Let's not take your sweet ass time about this, Jesus. Okay, that's it. 
So, you know, we've got the classic first glance here. Uh, oh, I'm, not just the first glance. When Justin Timberlake sees Amy Adams, he says, wow. I will say, if I saw Amy Adams in the wild, I would probably also say, wow. You're talking about if you saw Amy Adams in the, in the animated film The Wild about zoo animals running around New York City. Yeah, sure. Okay. But, you know, I thought that that was a really good place to start because it's the first impression. And as Will said, he literally sees her and just says, wow. But I see her, I see her and I said, wow, but for a very different reason. I said, wow, because she showed up to a high school baseball game in heels and a full suit, even though she was intending to go to a high school baseball game. Yeah, it is weird. Like the only possible explanation is that she went straight from work when John Goodman went to her work and is like, you got to look after your dad. She's like, all right, I'm getting in the car right now. Right, but she flew. She had stuff. She It's not like she didn't have a duffel bag. She could have changed in the airport. I agree with you. I said that's the only explanation. I didn't say it was a good one. But basically, I like this point because Johnny's obviously invested from first glance. I like to think that the only way that they could make this make any sense is if for at least one of them, it was love at first sight. And so that's what I choose to believe. I just remember the time my friend saw Phoebe Waller-Bridge walking around in London and yelled, good Christ, loud enough that Phoebe looked over and smiled at her. <laughs> Amazing. So Catherine, does this point include the night that they're all at the bar and JT tries flirting with Amy Adams? Oh, no, no, he doesn't try flirting with Amy Adams. The other random drunk dude tries flirting with Amy Adams. And Clint Eastwood, to me, another sign that he's a murderer. He smashes that bottle real fast to hold it as a knife to a random man's throat. Yeah, because I think it establishes her character of she don't need no man. And also his character as he has killed and will again. (laughs) And JT is just like, hey, let's all calm down and be nice to each other. Kind of. I'm going to pretend to be your brother. That, I'm sorry about the kiss. I've never had a sister that looks like you before line. It made me actually go, ugh, out loud. It's weird. I had completely forgotten that that happened. And I was like, what? Why? No. That was my, yeah. No, that just shouldn't have happened. We also, we, we talked about Clint being really old. We have not acknowledged what a big year 2012 is for Clint Eastwood. It's one of the rare years that he doesn't put out a movie that he directed. But it is the year that less than a month before this movie came out, he gave one of the greatest political convention speeches of all time. So, Mr. President, how do you, uh, how do you, handle, uh, how do you handle promises that you've made when you were running for election? And how do you handle... Uh, how do you handle it? I mean, what do you say to people? Do you, uh, do you just, uh, you know, I know people, uh, people were wondering, you don't, you don't have it, okay. Well, I know even some of the people in your own party were very disappointed when you didn't close Gitmo. And I thought, uh, well, I think get, closing Gitmo, why close that? We've spent so much money on it. Uh, but uh, I thought maybe it's an excuse. What do you mean, shut up? Oh my god, that was only a month before this? Yes. Wow. What a time. It was like the last night of the Republican National Convention, like, in prime time, like, the only hour of the convention that the broadcast networks carried. What was wild was if you watched that whole night on cable, like, the first hour of it was just, like, people from Mitt Romney's, like, local church talking about, like, what a good man he was and, like, different times that, like, Romney had helped their families. 
And it was all, they were doing all the like humanizing Bane Capital, Mitt Romney stuff. And they're like, that's the stuff we'll just show to the cable nerds. When primetime's on, we got Clint Eastwood. And then Clint walks out with a chair. The stage manager of the convention later admitted, they were like, I thought he was tired and was going to sit down. Like, they did not know what he was going to do. And he just rambled at an empty chair that represented Barack Obama for about 20 minutes. And it's a moment that lives well within the American imagination to this day. But the thing, too, was like earlier that year, Mark, you definitely don't know about this. Catherine, I don't know if you remember this. Clint also did voiceover in like a car commercial during the Super Bowl. It was called Halftime in America. And it, oh, my. It aired during halftime. And a bunch of conservatives got mad at that ad because they were like, Halftime in America, it's halfway through if Obama gets reelected. It sounds like an Obama reelect ad. It really did. It's halftime in America, too. People are out of work and they're hurting. And they're all wondering what they're gonna do to make a comeback. And we're all scared because this isn't a game. The people of Detroit know a little something about this. They almost lost everything. But we all pulled together. Now Motor City is fighting again. But so on the one hand, he does this car commercial that sounds like it's pro-Obama. Then he does the empty chair speech at the Republican convention. And then, of course, he rounds out the trilogy with Trouble with the Curve. What a year for Clint. I would also like to point out that the subtitles in this bar scene that we're talking about, he literally growls. And the subtitle... I hope it's in the screenplay. The subtitle reads, growl. Like, it's incredible. This is this is what I love about Clint Eastwood is just not caring at all, being crotchety. And doing it for three decades. At one point he did say the word mule and I laughed. It was yeah. entirely unrelated to anything. He just mentioned the word mule and I laughed. And honestly, the only time he's not super crotchety in this movie is when he goes to see the minor league baseball player who's struggling, who is played by his son. That is Scott Eastwood. <laughs> I did not put that together. So played by his actual son. And it's the only time until the very end that he shows any sort of like human general empathy. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so JT said, wow, when he saw Amy Adams in the wild and then he kissed her because he was pretending she was his sister. You know, that normal thing you do. Yeah, pretty much. That's pretty much this point. Like it's a weird first interaction, but I think it establishes their relationship going forward. <laughs> yeah, their weird relationship. So so where does that take us? So, you know, after that classic first interaction, they got to continue to build on the chemistry that they've developed, right? So that brings us to point number two, which is them flirting at the third base fence. Why are you right next to me? Because you're the first scout I've ever been attracted to, thank God. I'm not a scout, I'm a lawyer. Normally a deal breaker, but I'm all about expanding my level of tolerance, self-improvement, etc. Impressive. Thank you. Right. We have not mentioned Clint Eastwood is going blind. And so he is a, he's a baseball scout. And the problem is he is going blind. So he can no longer really watch these people play baseball. And the Moneyball people want to phase him out because they're like, we can do all this on a computer. And also, it kind of seems like he's losing his edge, which he is because he's blind. Right. So... To compensate for the fact that he himself cannot see and, you know, Mickey showing up against his, you know, explicit orders, he decides to use her instead. 
So he sends her down to actually watch what he thinks he's seeing through his blindness on the players that he's scouting. So this results in her going down to the third base fence to watch a kid hit and watch a swing and see what's going on there. Lots of baseball terms getting thrown around for those who know or don't. You'll just hear them as baseball terms. But then Justin Timberlake, Johnny, decides to follow her down to the fence Not because he thinks that that's a good place to scout the baseball, but because he wants to talk to her. So he comes and stands really, really close to her. We should just acknowledge, like to help paint a a picture for the the listeners, everyone in this movie is always wearing a logo-less baseball hat. That's how you know they are actually international spies. So, you know, Amy Adams is at least appropriately dressed for a high school baseball game at this point, but... They go over the third base fence. It's a completely empty fence full, you know, nobody else is over there. So Justin Timberlake comes and he's standing about three feet from her. And she looks at him and is like, dude, there's a whole open fence here. Why are you standing next to me? And he says, because you're the first scout I've ever been attracted to. Thank God. And she says, I'm not a scout. I'm an attorney. This movie's real subtle, guys. To which he replies, Normally a deal breaker, but eh, I'll go with it. <laughs> the dialogue in this movie physically pained me at times. I'm like, don't don't sue over this poorly written flop. But I, I like this first flirtatious, if you can call it that, interaction. Oh, it's definitely flirtatious. It's just not good. Because it reminds me a lot of conversations that happen when you're trying to date in DC. It's like... Oh, well, you're this. And it's like, well, actually, no, I'm this much worse thing. (laughs) (laughs) That is very accurate, honestly. Oh, sorry, no, I am this much worse thing. And you say to yourself, I mean, normally a deal breaker, but... On the other hand, she does look like Amy Adams. But there's not that many other available people right now. So, eh, I'll go with it. Yeah, they're all getting invited to events like Mark. It's a rough life. But, you know, somehow there's fewer single people post-pandemic than there were pre-pandemic. Everyone buddied up for the quarantine. Yeah, and then it got super serious and it makes no sense, but... Anyway, all right. So they, they're doing some flirting. And, and again, the thing is, like, this disappears for large stretches while Clint is focusing on, like, talking to his dick or whatever. I think we should make a movie. You know, Clint has trouble peeing. Where is, like... It would probably be a comedy about somebody who has an erection lasting more than four hours. Um, This is entirely the scene in Austin Powers when he wakes up from the deep sleep. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then has to use the restroom for like 15 minutes. That scene did not make it into Space Jam A New Legacy. That's shocking to me. God, that movie needs to stop being relevant. All right. So point two, they flirt at the fence. Does this bring us to point three? Because again, there is not a lot of romance in this film. Oh yeah. So, you know, they flirt at the fence. Then we don't see them talk for a while. And you've got Amy Adams. She's really in a relationship with her job, but ostensibly has this other boyfriend who she was dating, who calls her and is like, well, I didn't even know you left town. So we're done. So, you know, obviously she's upset about being dumped by 
the guy who plays Charles on the TV show Younger, which is a wonderful TV show. So she goes and tries to get drunk at the one bar that apparently exists in this town. Which, surprise, is a clogging bar. And is also walking distance from the motel, apparently. Okay. Okay. Name a team. To have four 20 game winners in the same season. Go. 71 Orioles, Palmer, McNally, Quayer, and Dobson, and they lose to the Pirates in the series. Go figure. Oh, you've got to be kidding me! Have you had enough? Mm-mm. I will say, all of this to me is believable for the size of the town that they are painting. What's not as believable is that in a town of what? I think there are 30 people that live there. The baseball player is as famous as he is. And the stadium is always full. I mean, you get people from the whole county that come to watch the one kid. That actually, that part is the most believable part of this to me. Because I grew up around guys that were like this, that were highly touted prospects. And you'd get people that would go watch them play. I'm just saying, if the bar is going to applaud Justin Timberlake for showboating baseball trivia, the whole scene should be staged like like that bar from Raiders, where everyone is standing around watching Karen Allen and the other dude go back and forth taking shots. It should be like that. It, it should be tense and everyone's watching. Instead, it seems like no one is paying attention, but once he starts making a big thing of it, fine, people are watching him, but for some reason, they're into it. Yeah, so, you know, Amy Adams is upset about being dumped by this boyfriend that she really didn't seem into at all. So she goes to the the scout bar, and her dad basically yells at her to go hang out with Justin Timberlake. And she's like, no, I don't want to. I just want to drink and be sad. And he sa- and he yells at her until she goes. And so then they end up on their first date, which is a wild ride, let me tell you. Yeah, it's mostly them quizzing each other on baseball trivia and doing shots. And then the clogging. And then they clog. And then when they're walking home, they slow dance to some busker playing an electric guitar that's also in this town of 500 people for some reason. This is a weird movie. It's weirder in retrospect than while watching it. While watching it, it's mostly boring. So I I do have to ask, have either of you been to a clogging bar or seen people actually clog in real life? I mean, I'm from Atlanta, so of course I have. I have not been to a clogging bar. I would believe I've seen people clog, but it has not stuck in my head. Mark, have you ever clogged yourself? No, of course I haven't been to a clogging bar. Have you met me? I've seen square dancing, but I've never seen clogging. Okay, so a fun fact about me... (laughs) Is that you are a clog? I have clogged because at the county fair when I was a child, they had, you know, I I tap dance, which is not the same, but similar enough. So I was once at a county fair with my grandmother and they had a clogging lesson and clogging performances for like several hours. And so I went to the clogging lesson and it's close enough to tap that I made it work. And so, yeah, I, I think I can call myself a bit of a clogger. Wow. Uh, so that point number three, they have this, like, lovely date night. And then the next day, Clint and Amy Adams are at a baseball game, and they did not save a seat next to them. And when Timberlake shows up, they don't talk to him. It's super weird. Well, she does end the date night with telling him that she has no available space for a relationship. Yes, but there's a difference between, like, I don't want to date you and, like, totally cold-shouldering someone who you've been hanging out with for days. 
Right, but going back to the fact that this movie is not subtle at all, the next day, there is literally no available space next to them at the ballpark. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so then I guess at some point in here, too, they have the night in the lake, right? Has that happened yet? No, that happens later. I don't know. They hang out a bit. It doesn't feel super important. We've talked about the skinny dip. Yeah. That's not a skinny dip because Amy Adams keeps her shirt on. Hey, I can respect it. That was just so forced because I think it's in Justin Timberlake's contract that he must be stripped down to his underwear at least once per movie. And it was weird when he did it as Boo Boo Bear. Hey, Boo Boo Bear is never not naked. All right, so I think this brings us to point four, where they actually have the fight. And I checked, and it was only like 20 minutes from the end of the movie. Are the trolls shirtless? No, I think they're clothed. Okay. Is he in Trolls? I thought he just sang the song. He's the male lead of Trolls. It's him and Anna Kendrick. Oh, I don't know. I don't care about Trolls. Uh, DreamWorks Trolls? We're going to watch it one day. Is that... Oh, (laughs) Oh, Ah! We're going to go on a world tour, Mark. I will continue doing this pod <laughs> as long as it takes, filling it other movies, just so we never get to the Trolls series. Anyway, point four is draft day. So, you know, across the whole, the like main plot of this movie is the fact that all of these baseball scouts are going around and looking at this one high schooler who looks too large to be a high schooler. Don't worry, some of his teammates are tiny. I love the nerd. The little ginger with the big glasses. Yeah. (laughs) That's what you looked like in high school, right? I mean, my glasses were smaller, but basically, yes. Yeah. But so they're all trying to go scout this kid. He's a jerk, but they think he's going to be the next Albert Pujols. But Clint Eastwood, he's working for the Atlanta Braves, who have this the first overall pick. And then Justin Timberlake, Johnny's working for the Boston Red Sox, who have the second overall pick. No, it's vice versa. Is the, oh, nope, you're right. It's the other way around. Sox have the first pick, the Braves have the second pick. And so they're all trying to decide who's going to take this kid, Bo Gentry, who is an absolute jackass. And Clint Eastwood sees that this kid's hands drift, which means that he is not going to be able to hit anything. He has got trouble with the curve. He hears it. Correct. And then Mickey confirms it by sight. And so he's not going to be able to hit anything at speed in Major League Baseball. Kind of ever. So why waste a first, like a first round draft pick on him? And he convinces... Johnny, who's kind of new to the scouting game, but when he was playing, had been scouted by Clint Eastwood to pass on the pick as well. Well, the front office back in Atlanta decides not to listen to Clint Eastwood. So on draft day, after Justin Timberlake passes on this kid for the first overall pick, and then the Braves, against the, against the wishes of Clint Eastwood, the only guy who's seen this kid play in person, they pick him up. So then Johnny's big mad. Yeah, so he flips out because he thinks that basically they were stringing him along so that Boston would pass on Gentry. He basically accuses Amy Adams of having like seduced him into doing what they wanted. So I understand why he is mad. Yeah, But totally. it's a little unfair to start blaming Amy Adams for that. That's taking it kind of far. Yeah. Especially because he consistently was the one pursuing her. Yes. Right. She wanted 
nothing to do with him. And then he kind of forced his way in there, but then blames her for the fact that other people in Atlanta didn't listen to what they said. And so then he storms away. Yep. <laughs> Point five. Point five. And we think that he's not coming back, but it's a movie and he obviously comes back. You came all this way to ask me that? Yeah. Charlie Huff, Elias Sosa, Bert Houghton. Is that it? Is that all you got? No. You got a lot more than that. He comes to the stadium in Atlanta, and it's lucky that they were there that day because Clint has been fired and Amy Adams doesn't work there. But they are there. Excuse because me. She... He was offered early retirement. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but they are there because she has gotten John Goodman to allow her to run a little demo with Bo Gentry using a pitcher who is the son of the owner of the motel they stayed at in North Carolina. Wow, that kid's got a real arm on him. It's like Lip Nicky at the end of Jerry Maguire, but this guy's like 20. Who Bo Gentry had also been mean to before. Right. And this kid, you know, nobody knew about him because his grades weren't good enough for his mom to let him play organized baseball. So, you know, they're there. They resolve the baseball storyline. He's got trouble with the curve. Turns out Clint Eastwood was right. And as they're leaving Turner Field from a side gate, that there's no one else on the street. It makes no sense for him to be there. There is zero reason for him to be there. But he is. She's like, what are you doing here? I was like, I gotta do one thing. Ask you some baseball trivia. I hate it. So he asks her some random baseball trivia about three homers in a World Series game in the pitchers. And as she's answering, it's like, There's the dramatic music playing. She's talking slowly. She starts to walk towards him. And, you know, who knew that baseball trivia was sexy? Because then the movie ends with them making out in front of her dad. He's got one last thing to scout. The movie should end with her and her dad forgiving each other for everything. Right. But it ends instead with them making out. Clint Eastwood lighting a cigar and walking away saying, guess I'll have to take the bus. Clint should sing the credit song to this movie like in Gran Torino. <laughs> but he should do it on screen like he sings You Are My Sunshine. Like it should I be hated that a, moment so a call me by your name style like credits roll over one still shot. But it's of Clint singing a Trouble with the Curve song. So... After watching this movie, do you find the romance between Mickey and Johnny believable? No. No. Absolutely not. (laughs) He's just an asshole to her. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. Pushes way too hard. And then it also doesn't make sense that he's at that gate in Atlanta. It also doesn't make sense that he, like, there's no reason for him to have forgiven her. It's not like he hears about Bo Gentry being benched or something. I think he could possibly have heard through the grapevine that, like, Clint was being let go because he had fought against that draft. Okay. I mean, right. the movie just feels no need to show us this. Right. That was my reaction. It's like, okay, all this stuff where we just learned everything just went down. How did he get from Boston to Atlanta with his car that quick? So, 
Every week we rate the believability of a movie on a scale from 0 to 10, where 0 means we believe none of it, and 10 means we believe all of it. Catherine, where would you put Trouble with the Curve? I don't know, like a 2? What were you thinking, Will? I don't know. I was leaning towards maybe a 3. Yeah, I think I'm a 3 on this one. It's, I can get behind it's, three. It's bad, but they are two attractive people who like baseball. Right. It doesn't make sense, but it's not, like, bewildering. Yeah. It's no Howard the Duck. Now, do you think Mickey and Johnny are dateable? I'm going to say no to both, but I'm curious what Catherine thinks. Um, I think that they could be in different circumstances. So if they were different people, yes. I would say different circumstances, not different people. I feel like I don't know enough about Johnny to answer this question, so I would go with no. I know enough to say a hard pass. I think Mickey, at the end of this movie, now that she's theoretically quitting her corporate law job and seems to be happier, I think she'd be dateable. She's just so much of a workaholic. Like, I don't think that's going to stop. Yeah, I think she will continue to work every Sunday. If you did have to pick someone in this movie to date, who would you choose? Uh, John Goodman. John Duh. Goodman. He is rocking a stash. He's rocking a stash. He's a good This friend. is also this same year as Flight when he has that ponytail. Doesn't he have both in Community? Yeah, so that hairdo he has in Community is because he had been shooting Flight. Oh. Anyway, Will, who would you choose? Um, yeah, it feels like the answer just has to be John Goodman. Like, he is the only character in the movie who even rises to the level of nice. I mean, the only other nice person is a high schooler who was on screen for like 30 seconds and that feels wrong to choose. All right. I was like, well, what about like the the kid who they bring in, the like secret pitcher? I was like, one, I, I don't know how old he is, but he has the charisma of a baked potato. So I don't know that I want to date him. All right. Do you think Mickey and Johnny stay together? No. No. Yeah, props not. Distance, general distrust, no. Now, Catherine, many of the films that we've discussed in this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. Should there be a musical of Trouble with the Curve? You don't have to keep the horse. <laughs> no. There's only, there is a seminal baseball musical. It's called Damn Yankees, and it should stay that way. I mean, they did announce a couple years ago, that Jason Robert Brown was working on A League of Their Own. I mean, that's also fine. I can get behind that. We don't need more baseball musicals. We just don't. It's not a sport that lends itself super well to the stage. Absolutely not. Distance plays a very large part in baseball. You have to watch the ball go far. I do think of baseball movies, this is one that actually does lend itself pretty well to a stage adaptation because it's not very much about playing baseball. Mm-hmm. Like, you could have some guys, like, effectively playing catch somewhere on stage because it's more about the watching than it is about the playing. But it's also bad, so we don't need a musical version. Well, I, that's the, I'm saying, like, you could use the bones of this to maybe make an interesting, like, father-daughter musical. And then you could, like, get really heavy-handed with, like, stuff about what he can't see, and it's like, he's blind, but also he can't see what she wants! Oh, gross. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I think that's it for this movie. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I mean, I think I think we've said what we had to say. Catherine, uh, thank you for being willing to uh, expose another one of your favorite movies to this. I would not call this a favorite Oh, good. Oh, anymore. good. 
but uh, you know, always always happy to sacrifice the ideals of I don't know how twenty year old me for for the joy of the pod. All right, next week we'll be jumping back a little bit further in time to talk about Father of the Bride with future bride Fifi Fierce. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. Last question, Catherine. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from this movie? I'm going to choose to believe that the real love story of this movie is between Amy Adams and baseball. So find your passion. Do what you love. For her, it's baseball. I'm going to say... Take the wildest guess of where someone you just had a fight with will end up and just hope that they're there to make up. Uh, I am going to say, apparently, detailed trivia is not a deal breaker, but only if they are also interested. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. So tenderly. Your story is nothing more than what you see or what you've done or will become. Standing strong, do you belong in your skin? Just wondering. Gentle now, the tender breeze blows, whispers through my grand torino, whistling other tired souls.